Well, it's hard to gauge how the average American thinks about the term sin. But for many, the concept of sin is not associated with religion, God, or the Bible, but with either a guilty pleasure, that dark chocolate that's sinfully delicious, or with a violation of prudish Victorian-era social norms. So the modern American way of relating to sin defined in these terms is almost funny. We repent of our Victorian-era social norms, we indulge our guilty pleasures, and we pay for those indulgences on our own, cent by cent, through sin taxes that, at least in America, generate nearly $100 billion a year. That's the way that most people on the street think about sin. That probably should help us as we think about talking to people about sin and salvation. I don't know that most people have the biblical concept in mind. But where some holdover of biblical definition remains, I think most people resist the notion that ordinary people are sinners. Um, One Scottish theologian points out that in postmodern society, sinners are the people who are identified as pedophiles, murderers, rapists, terrorists, drug pushers, and those who mug defenseless old ladies, and those who swindle banks out of millions of pounds, but not ordinary people. So even many Christians resist lumping the ordinary person in with that awful group called sinners. So when it comes to congregational singing, songs like Amazing Grace are out. No one wants to sing about a wretch like me who's lost in sin. Corporate confessions of sin like we had this morning are disconcerting because it applies that everyone sitting in the room is categorically a sinner in need of pardon. I think the people who object to talking about sin so much do have a point. It is true that within the Christian church history, a lot of times when pastors or churches talk about the reality of sin, they do so with this air of judgmentalism that's punctuated with hypocrisy. Um, Sometimes when pastors preach, you know, maybe even me, we, we tend to talk about sin with such force that it sounds like we're talking to a congregation of Hitlers and Stalins and not people who are repenting of their sin every week and growing in the faith. Um, So we need to avoid those errors when we talk about sin. But the distortion of the doctrine of sin or the loss of the doctrine of sin is really detrimental. It doesn't help anybody out. So I know that some here perhaps feel uncomfortable when we talk about sin so much or the way that we talk about sin. So before we do, I just want to explain why we need to talk about sin. Not just because it's in the Bible, but because if we lose what the Bible teaches about sin, we lose the ability to perceive its opposite. We lose the ability to detect what's good and true and beautiful in the gospel because we no longer can define sin. So I want to give you a really long quote by a philosopher, theologian named Cornelius Plantinga that explains why we need to uh, regain knowledge of sin. He writes, many of us have lost this knowledge of sin, and we ought to regret the loss. For slippage in our consciousness of sin, like most fashionable follies, may be pleasant, but it's also devastating. Self-deception about our sin is a narcotic, a tranquilizing and disorienting suppression of our spiritual central nervous system. 
What's devastating about it is that when we lack an ear for wrong notes in our lives, we cannot play right ones or even recognize them in the performances of others. Eventually, we make ourselves religiously so unmusical that we miss both the exposition and the recapitulation of the main themes God plays in human life. The music of creation and the still greater music of grace whistle right through our skulls, causing no catch of breath and leaving no residue. Moral beauty begins to bore us. The idea that the human race needs a savior sounds quaint. That's what happens when we lose the doctrine of sin. And so what we're doing this morning is trying to regain a little bit of that because if we want to hear about all of the glorious grace in the rest of Romans, if Romans 8 is going to mean anything to you when we get there, we have to get through Romans 3 first and understand what Paul is saying. So the way that I want to do this is to pose four guiding questions. First, what is sin? Second, who is affected by sin? Three, what are some of sin's effects? And then finally, what is the solution to the sin problem? So let's begin with number one. What is sin? Well, in Romans 3, 9, Paul writes that he's already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. He phrases it in that curious way. Everyone is under sin. By stating the problem in this way, Paul personifies sin. He pictures it as an entity, a cosmic, tyrannical power that has put every human person under its rule and authority. Now, many translations draw attention to the personification of sin here by rendering that phrase under sin's power or under sin's dominion. And I think that's really helpful. Um, There's one French translation of the Bible that is translated into English here that states it really well. It says that every person, Jew and Gentile, has been put into the empire of sin. I think that's helpful because it contrasts the tyrannical power of sin, the kingdom of sin, with the kingdom of God. So in this way, Paul is distinguishing between lowercase s acts of sins, sins that we commit, and the uppercase s sin, that's the power that animates all of the acts of sin that we participate in. Uppercase sin is a power opposed to God, and sins, lowercase, are acts that human agents commit in cooperation with sin, the power. Okay, so that's an important distinction that Paul makes here. We have the power of sin that is the animating force behind every act of sin. You need to hang on to this because this is going to be really important in a few minutes. Although in this verse, in 3.9, Paul only subtly refers to sin as a power, he personifies it here subtly, he does so really explicitly throughout the rest of Romans, and he compiles a massive resume of the accomplishments of the emperor's sin. So in Romans 5.12, sin is personified as it enters into the world through Adam's disobedience, bringing death with it. In Romans 5.20-21, through 21, Sin is portrayed as a reigning power characterized by death in contrast to Jesus Christ, whose reign is characterized by life. In Romans 6, 12, and 14, Christians are called to resist the reign of sin. So there, he urges Christians to avoid presenting themselves as willing soldiers in sin's army. 
because God has emigrated Christians out of sin's kingdom and into God's kingdom. In both Romans 7 and 8, Paul describes sin as an active force that captivates human agents. So have you ever wondered why Paul says in Romans 7, it's no longer I that am doing this, but sin operating in me. It's because he's talking about a power that's at work. Throughout Romans, Paul is going to distinguish between acts of sin and the tyrannical power sin. And in Paul's letter here, the uppercase S sin is a power that's captivated humanity, that's brought them into its service in opposition to God and his kingdom. What does that look like? Service to sin involves rebellion against God, disobedience to his kingship, and opposition to his work in the world. I'd, I'd suggest that every single sin listed between Romans 1.18 and the end of our text this morning are just symptoms of the greater power of sin that's been unleashed in the world. It's an anti-God power. I like one way, that, uh, one theologian states it this way. Sin is sin, capital S. Not the lowercase transgression, not even a human disposition or a flaw in human nature, but an uppercase power that enslaves humankind and stands over God. So in Romans, sin is this anti-God power that's at work in the world, that's spread a captivating kingdom, that covers the whole of humanity with its dark cloud, that, that obscures God's glory. Now, when it comes to this empire of sin or this power of sin, no human agent is an innocent victim. Okay, so it is true, humans are oppressed by the power of sin, but humans also participate in the power of sin. So it's not right to say human agents are void of responsibility for their acts of sin because they're under the oppression of the power of sin. We can't say that because Paul also identifies the initial human action that plunged them into captivity to begin with. Um, Humanity's refusal of God's lordship meant that God gave humanity over to captivity to sin. So both things are true, and we need a solution that can deal with both of them. Our perpetuation of sin and our oppression by sin. Okay, so what is sin? We have two categories. One, the cosmic power, and then two, our own individual participation in it. So then we need to ask, who is affected by sin? Okay, there are two groups that I want to point out. First, individual people are affected by sin, and social bodies are affected by sin. Let's talk about individuals first. Um, individuals are oppressed by sin, but individuals participate in sin. We commit sin. We perpetuate it. Uh, individual sin can show up in any sort of way, but ultimately, it's an act of rebellion against God. It's living as if we are kings of the universe, free to legislate between right and wrong on our own, and then acting in that way. It's our refusal to serve or worship God. Because we've talked about individual acts of sin throughout Romans so far, I'm not going to belabor this, but we all know what individual acts of sin are if we pay attention to them. Read the Bible, see the commands, we do the opposite, that's sin. However, sin is not limited to individual people. It doesn't stop there. It also infects social bodies. What I mean by social bodies are institutions and identity groups of any, any kind. 
So here in Romans, Paul talks about two social bodies, Jewish people and non-Jewish people. He can do this really easily, not only because of the way that the Old Testament sets him up for this, but also because in New Testament times, individual identity wasn't the main thing. Your belonging to a group was the main thing. So whether that was your family or your ethnicity or a nation or whatever else it might be, the social body that you belonged to was your primary point of reference when it came to your identity. And Paul is trying to show here that sin is so powerful that it infiltrates every single social group. The proof that no social group remains uninfected by sin is the fact that even Israel has been infected by sin. So you'll notice in this text, he says that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. For some readers, that would have been surprising because Israel had received Torah, God's law, the thing that would protect them from the cosmic power of sin. But Paul goes through great lengths in Romans to demonstrate that even the law was not able to withstand sin's power. This is what Paul gets at in Romans 3, 19 and 20 that Ben read earlier. This law that was supposed to bring about knowledge of God so that people would know God and love him and ultimately serve him instead brought about knowledge of sin with the result that people knew and loved and served sin instead of God. So if even the social body that was protected by Torah and the Ten Commandments and all of God's law, if even that social body wasn't immune to the power of sin, then no other body, social body on planet Earth can be. What that means is that no identity group can be labeled the good guys versus the bad guys. Because sin isn't separated out by groups as if you can join one social body or social group and run away from sin. Instead, sin cuts across every social identity marker. Now, this is a little bit complicated, but this is an important piece of what we would call political theology, okay? So bear with me for just a moment, but this is, this is really important. When you look at church history, particularly in America, there are essentially two ways of religious thinking about how sin works, um, particularly among conservative evangelical Christians. There's an emphasis on individual acts of sin that people commit, and we need salvation from these individual acts of sin. Um, and the way that gets distorted at times is that the way to overcome individual acts of sin is piece by piece just fixing yourself up morally, um, plugging into a moralistic system and making yourself better till eventually you've pretty much conquered the individual aspect of sin. On the other side, especially among like mainline Protestants, there's an emphasis on the social group aspect of sin or the social body aspect of sin. And from that perspective, what's needed is not really anything to do with me individually, but the freedom of one oppressed group from another oppressed group. So the terminology for this is liberation theology. Uh, both of these come into error when they get disconnected from the reality of the power of sin that infiltrates every group, individuals and every social body. So when the individual emphasis people tend towards legalism, it's like they've forgotten that there's a cosmic power of sin that needs to be defeated uh, to 
take care of all the individual acts of sin. When liberation theology, people forget about the cosmic power of sin behind this, it's no longer sin that's the problem, it's just an issue of power. But it's the power of sin that Paul draws our attention to. For some of you, that may be totally meaningless. But I think if you um, want to talk more, I'd be happy to. But if you start paying attention to the way people talk about how to fix our society, generally it falls into one of those two groups, and both of them can get skewed when they're taken in isolation and disconnected from the animating power of sin. So we need to bring them all together because Paul brings them all together. What's the upshot if we can hang all of this together? I think there there are a couple of them. First, it gets rid of any social pressure that we have to jettison the doctrine of sin. It's really popular just to stop talking about sin, maybe in part because the abuses or misunderstandings of it are so prevalent. But if we can hold them all together, it actually explains the world better and it solves the problems in the world a bit better. Um, One of the major problems that it solves is it provides a foundation for the belief of equality among all people. So it's kind of surprising, but the Christian doctrine of sin teaches us that no one's superior to one another. It teaches human equality. We're all bound by the power of sin and we're all lost in sin. So if you ever hear someone say, the doctrine of sin is what creates all sort of wars or judgmentalism or, you know, nasty attitudes towards other people, that, that's only true if people have misunderstood the doctrine of sin. The biblical doctrine of sin teaches us that we're all equal. No one's better than another. No social identity group is better than another. We're all equally sinful and in need of a savior. But then second, um, If we can hold all of this together, I think what it will do is it will point us to the ultimate solution instead of tying us up with secondary incomplete solutions. Instead of working through moralism or freedom or a deconstruction of some sort, it drives us to Jesus, the only one who can actually solve the sin problem. Okay, so it provides for a recognition of human equality and it also points us in the direction of the solution. All right, if you zoned out in that at all, because as soon as you hear political theology, you no longer care, now you can zoom back in as we talk about the effects of sin. What are some, at least, of the effects of sin? Paul lists them here. What are the effects of capital S, uppercase S, sin? I'm just going to walk through them in principle and quickly, but they're all very important. First, in Romans 3.10, Paul points out that the sin brings about guilt of every person before God. Although every social group and individual is under the oppressive rule of sin, every social group and individual participates in sin and is therefore guilty before God. Humanity at large is marked by unrighteousness, both in terms of legal justification before God and in moral unrighteousness. Every person is guilty before God. Now, it's interesting to me that when Paul talks about guilt, he's not talking about a psychological feeling of guilt. He's talking about a legal reality in our relationship before the throne room of God. We're guilty. And so part of the solution to sin's effect is going to have to be something that can deal with this guiltiness before God. Second, Romans 3.11a, sin disrupts clear Godward thinking and produces corrupt thinking and distorted understanding. 
the power of sin messes with our rationality. Now, that's not the only effect of sin, but it is an important one. And I, I would propose that the main way our understanding is affected by the power of sin is that it gives us a sort of spiritual Stockholm syndrome. So that when, when we pursue sin, we think we're finding life and freedom because our rationality has become corrupted. When in reality, we're only finding death and captivity. That, that's how sin distorts our understanding. It tricks us into thinking that sin is for our good and it's our freedom being expressed when really it just takes us further and further into its tyrannical reign. Third, um, humanity at large has been convinced by the power of sin to reject God. Verse 11b, the power of sin brings about a mass rejection of God. Humanity as a whole is characterized by running away from God, not pursuing him. And as a result of running from God, humanity runs from the source of immortality and virtue and finds only vice and death instead. Fourth, in verses 13 and 14, humanity, as a result of sin's working, became marked by destructive speech, especially verbal abuse, rather than speech marked by healing and grace. Um, this is worth pausing on for a little bit, because I think it... This is often overlooked in the Bible. But if you read the Psalms, for example, over and over again, you'll see complaints about people using their speech in weaponized and vindictive ways. Christians don't often attend to how strongly the biblical authors condemn harsh and hurtful use of language, but it's everywhere in the Bible. I think it's everywhere in the Bible for two reasons. First, because wherever there's verbal abuse or, or a use of speech that's destructive, relationships at an individual and community level will disintegrate. No community and no relationship can last for long when people are using their speech in verbally abusive ways. But then second, the kind of speech described in verses 13 and 14 is the opposite of the kind of speech that God uses. God uses his speech to create and to sustain life. But this serpent life speech thwarts God's creative word and brings about death instead. This kind of speech is in direct opposition to the new creation word made flesh kind of speech that we see from God throughout the Bible. But sin's power brings about this destructive use of speech. Fifth, in verses 15 and 17, the outcome of verbal abuse and rejection and this working of sin's power is relational destruction. The cosmic power of sin destroys relationships, sometimes as indicated in these verses through literal murder, but more often through destroying the peace and killing the relational harmony that God intends. Um, relationships can be destroyed in so many ways through sinful activity that it's impossible to list them all here. That if you've ever had a broken relationship in your life, you know how sin tears down thriving relationships. Communities and relationships are ripped apart when people use slanderous words by cutting others down with a thousand cuts of the knife of the tongue. Male and female friendships are destroyed through a violation of appropriate, and emotion, appropriate emotional and physical boundaries. Marriages are destroyed through selfish, inconsiderate acts, grudges that are harbored for gener decades, 
generations, it seems. Church relationships are destroyed through time, through cold shoulders and judgmentalism and impatience over trivial matters. All sorts of sin creep into relationships and destroy them. Paul is showing us that's an outworking of the power of sin. Sixth, verse 18, the list appropriately ends with rebellion against God. The ultimate outworking of sin is the creation of an entire kingdom that is marked by rebellion against God. Paul will show us in the next chapters that that's the whole story of humanity. Before we move on, um, I think it's worth going one level deeper into Paul's use of the Old Testament here. Hang with me for about two minutes. I think this might help clarify a few things as we move forward. First, when you're looking at this list, if you're, if you're looking in your Bible, probably the publishers have formatted verses 10 through 18 somewhat differently, either in bold or italics, or they've set them off in some way to indicate that Paul is quoting the Old Testament. I think what Paul is doing here is he's mirroring in these verses what he already said in Romans 1, 18 through 32. So in Romans 1, 18 through 32, Paul just observes through natural revelation the sin that's infected all of humanity. But he doesn't do so with his own moral authority. Now he bookends it with God's moral authority, where divine revelation reveals the same thing to be true of both Gentiles, who are the focus in Romans 1, 18 through 32, and now non-Gentiles, who are the focus here in verses 9 through 18. Through both natural and divine revelation, it's obvious that all of humanity is characterized by sin, and they're under the oppression of the power of sin. But second, it's worth considering um, the Old Testament text that Paul actually uses. We've talked in the past about how often when Paul quotes the Old Testament, he'll just throw a verse in there, or in this case, a bunch of parts of verses, and they're like portals that will transport you into another world. And if you take all of that context from that world, his writing becomes so much more meaningful. Well, if we followed the portal of each of these verses, we'd see that most of these verses come from the Psalms, and they're an Israelite writing, complaining about the wickedness of non-Israelites. Well, Paul here has appropriated these and indicted Israel themselves for being just as evil and sinful as the Gentiles. This is not Paul being anti-Semitic. It's just him making the point that even those who think they're righteous are not righteous. We should take that to heart as well. But third, as we look at this list and we see the kind of things that sin brings about, it should shape our conception of the kind of salvation that we need. Unfortunately, I think for many of us, we can have a really narrow view of what salvation Jesus brought for us. So this is a little bit silly, but if you were like me, um, you, you know, I, I was a counselor at a Christian camp for a long time, and we, we had this speaker come in who weirdly did a puppet show and, and told all of the kids, um, you know, you're all sinners, and if you don't get saved, you're going to go hell, to hell forever. But if you get saved, you can go to heaven and ride bears. Wouldn't that be fun? Now, walk the aisle if you'd like to not go to hell and you would like to ride a bear someday. Well, not all of you came from th- that background. Some of you did, I know. Um, 
that's such a narrow and distorted understanding of what Jesus saves us from. But if we look at this list, these are the things that we need to be saved so, safe from. The cosmic power of sin is what we need to be saved from. And that shapes and shows us what we're saved to. So earlier in this series, I gave you a definition of the way the biblical authors talk about salvation. I just want to give that to you one more time because these are the kind of verses that support it. When the biblical authors talk about sin, they're talking about a complex idea that includes rescue from pagan oppressors. Now that was especially when talking to Israel and now to us in particular, release from captivity to sin restoration of divine blessing and removal of divine judgment and a re renewal of the covenantal relationship between God and humanity. When, when we talk about being saved, this is what we're talking about, rescue and renewal. And that certainly includes rescue from judgment, however it's described in the Bible, including the descriptions of hell that all of the third graders heard from this camp speaker but it includes a better picture of what the renewal looks like. And ultimately, it's a renewal of the covenantal relationship between God and humanity that will last forever. So when we talk about our need for salvation, this is what we're talking about. It's not just oppression by a social group, and it's not just about social ills that don't measure up to Victorian-era social norms. It's about this. This is the salvation that we need. Okay, so if sin, both the individual acts and the cosmic power is our problem that we need rescue from, what's the solution to the sin problem? What's the solution to the sin problem? Um, I, this is hard to answer because we're stopping our examination with verse 20 and Paul doesn't give the answer until verse 21 and following. I don't know if Paul ever imagined us breaking up his text like this and preaching it in this way, um, his first readers got the answer right away. Because we're going to examine what he says in the future, in the future, I want to instead point our attention to the past, to what Paul has already said. Because already in Romans, Paul has hinted towards the solution to the sin problem. And now with this cosmic power of sin in mind, I think it will shed light on what he's already said. We might appreciate it deeper. So there are at least two features of God's solution that Paul's already mentioned. First, in Romans 1, 16 through 17, Paul taught that the gospel is God's power for salvation for all who believe. The gospel is God's power for salvation in the only power that can defeat the power of sin. For Paul, it's in the power of the gospel that is up to the task of combating the power of sin. You and I can't do it on our own because we're culpable as sinners. We need rescue from the outside, and the gospel is God's power to do that. The salvation that comes through the gospel is not only individual and personal, though it is, it's also cosmic. It's also holistic. So when we read in Romans 8 about the entire earth groaning for redemption, when we talk about God loving the world, there's a cosmic level to what God is doing through the gospel that includes our individual salvation, but it includes the larger work of God in the world that will ultimately bring about our resurrection in the new creation as well. The gospel, it's God's power to defeat the power of sin. But then second... 
we might ask, how is the gospel God's power for salvation? How is the gospel powerful to defeat sin? Well, if you remember from the earlier sermons, I commented that in the ancient world, this word gospel was just a technical term for, term for a royal announcement. There were gospels all over the place that were connected to royal announcements from Caesar and other rulers. Well, the gospel is God's royal announcement that Jesus is king and that as king, he is now ruling over sin. This is what Jesus meant when he declared that the kingdom of God is at hand. And when the biblical authors talk about people being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's son. This kingdom work of Jesus has already been begun and it will be brought to completion when he returns and he reigns forever as king over the new creation. Jesus' kingship is not an add-on to the gospel. It's central to the gospel message because it's only as the king that Jesus could come as a human and enter into the cosmic power of darkness and defeat it. Jesus did this in his death on the cross in which he took the penalty for our sin, dealing with the guilt problem that we have before God, but he went on to face death and sin itself, and in his resurrection, he proved his victory over both. Those who respond to Jesus with what Paul calls in Romans 1, the obedience of faith, what we might call transferring our allegiance from the tyranny of sin to the kingdom of God, from the emperor sin to King Jesus, those who respond in that way receive the benefits of Jesus's kingship, which include freedom from captivity to sin. Now in the next sections in our future sermons of Romans, we'll be able to see the way that Jesus's death worked as an atoning sacrifice. That comes later in chapter three, and we'll see what it means for us to participate in that sacrifice. We'll also learn in later sermons what it looks like to put sin and death to death in our own lives in light of the reality that Jesus has put sin and death to death forever. When we enter into the death of Christ and into the victory of Christ, we're moved out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his son. And that changes everything about the way we live. Um, we no longer are captive to sin. We're now captive to King Jesus in the kind of captivity that produces true freedom. Um, there would be a lot of fruitful reflection for you as you sit with your family at lunch or if you meet with other people at our church for lunch to talk about what it means to be set free from sin's captivity. But I want to read you one paragraph uh, from Eugene Peterson in his rendering of a section of Romans 6 that I think pictures what we should imagine. He says, if we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we live in our old house there? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ, a decisive end to that sin-miserable life, no longer at sin's every beck and call. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him. But alive, he brings God down to us. From now on, think of it in this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on to every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That means you must not give sin a vote in the way you conduct your lives. Sin can't tell you how to live. 
After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. Let's turn to God in prayer and ask that through his spirit, he would enliven us and cause us to enter fully into that freedom and to resist resist the tyranny of sin in our lives. God, we thank you for your word and for the clarifications that it gives us about our own participation in sin and about the cosmic power of sin. Thank you that you gave us Jesus, who has dealt decisively with both of those realities. Would you cause any who are still captive to sin to find freedom in Christ alone? And would you allow those who have found freedom in Christ to continue putting to death the deeds of the flesh and to enter more fully into the freedom that we have in Jesus? We thank you for the grace that allows us to find life and freedom in him. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen.